Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. I am Zachariah Pittman. I'm one of the elders here at Pillar. Uh, Before we get started, I do want to thank a couple of people who uh, helped me with this. Um, I did sit down with Vince and with Ron, um, and they both gave me some really good feedback. But the people who uh, truly suffered in their giving of help was Elliot and Pippa, because um, I was rehearsing, and they willingly were my, my audience, and they even volunteered to do it a second time, which was um, truly selfless of them, because <laughs> they had to listen to it again twice on Sunday. So <laughs> um, <clears throat> I do want to start today with a question. It is a heavy question, um, but I'll explain why I'm asking it. The question I have is, if you knew that you were soon going to die, what is it you would want to tell your family and friends? What are the things that you would want your kids to hold on to after you're gone? Um, At the end of last year, I spent a month working on the search and recovery efforts for the eight crew members who died um, in the crash of Gundam 2-2. Um, so it's, it's a thing that I've been thinking through a lot lately. Um, we talk about death in our family, I think, fairly regularly, partially because of my profession. You know, in the military as a helicopter pilot, it's just a, you know, you know, you know people, right? You guys all know people. There are people in this church who are friends with people the wrong Gunnam Tutu, and a lot of you um, helped recover them as well. So I know it's a, it's a relevant question for us, for us as a community. Um, there is a lot that I want to tell my kids. Um, there's a lot I want to teach them in the time that I have left. Simple things, like I want to teach them that they are each other's best friends, even though they don't always act like it. Um, we try to teach them to share, to be kind to others, and we teach them that life is more than them. Um, they should live for something greater than themselves. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at a, a passage, or teachings from Jesus, um, that he gave his disciples when he knew he was going to die. Um, he knew his time was up, and so he had some things that he wanted to leave them with. Um, before I go any further, let's go ahead and pray together, please. Father, um, you are a good father, and we love you. Lord, I pray that you be with us today. Help me um, preach your word faithfully and well. I pray that you be with all of us, and Spirit, open our hearts to hear your word. Um, teach us what you would have us know. Give us courage to respond and to to know your goodness 
We ask this in your son's name. Amen. For the last few weeks, we've been going through a sermon series titled, This is Who, you, who We Are. As a church, we've been um, looking at the things that pillar values and how that shapes and impacts our weekly services here. Um, if you missed the uh, previous sermons, they are online. I'd encourage you to check them out when you have time. Um, quick disclaimer before I go any further. I've been here a long time. I've been a, uh, an elder for a few years, but this is my second time ever preaching, so please extend to me grace, and if you're new here, this is your first Sunday, please just hang in there one more week, because <laughs> I will not be preaching next week, thankfully. I am really excited, though, to have an opportunity um, to speak with you guys this morning. I'm excited because communion is... Um, really, really great. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly beautiful thing that Jesus left us with, and that's, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. Our big idea for today is that celebrating the Lord's Supper is a means of grace by which we rehearse what Jesus has done for us and who that makes us. I hope that after the sermon today, um, you'll leave encouraged and perhaps see the Lord's Supper in a new light. I hope that it also helps shine a light on, on who you are before God. Back to the, that question that I posed to you in the beginning about talking to your, um, your friends and your family. Um, I believe a question like that was on Jesus' mind during his final days. Um, his death wasn't an accident, but it was the very reason that he actually came to earth. He created all things and sits beside his father's throne in heaven, um, but he, he took on flesh and he became a man, lived perfectly as that man, um, but there was a terrible debt that had been building because every single man, woman, and child he's ever created has been imperfect. Um, every one of us has sinned, like Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all of those sins accumulated a tremendous debt, right? And the only way reconciliation could ever be had with the creator and his created beings, the only way that reconciliation could happen was through Jesus' death. So it was no surprise to him. So when the time of his death was drawing near, Jesus gathered his disciples, his closest friends, and he began to teach them. He began to teach them the things um, that he wanted to leave them with. It was during this time that some of his most famous teachings were given. Um, a lot of these are captured in John 13 through 17. Um, this is when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. In uh, John 13, he told them, uh, a new command I give to you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. He goes on and he's telling them that he's going away. 
And one of them asks him, and they say, we don't, we don't know how you, where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus tells them, in my father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Um, most of this probably sounds familiar uh, to most of you in this room. Um, if you don't have any clue what I'm talking about, I'm glad that you're here, and um, I hope you learned something, but I'm really glad that you're here. Um, it was during this time, you know, this, this moment was captured in the really famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci, The Last Supper, um, there on the screen. There are two ordinances that Jesus instituted. We call them ordinances because Jesus himself ordained them. Um, the first one is baptism. I'm not going to spend time on that today. Instead, we're going to spend time on the, the second ordinance, which is the Lord's Supper. Um, the Lord's Supper is also called communion. The Catholic Church calls it the Eucharist, um, but it's, it's all a celebration of the Lord's Supper. If you don't have your Bibles open yet, um, go ahead and turn to Matthew 26. We'll read it in a minute. Uh, if you have a paper copy of your Bible, Matthew is about three quarters through. It's the first book in the New Testament. We'll be in chapter 26, starting in 26. Uh, before I read it, I just want to set the scene real quick. So Jesus is there with his disciples. Um, he's with all 12 of them. They've gathered in the upper room of a house that um, a stranger let them use. They've gathered to celebrate the Passover. Um, outside, it's, it's probably early evening. The sun is just now starting to set. Long shadows are creeping across the land. Um, inside, they light lamps. Um, the room smells of sweat, of uh, well-worn leather, um, and of roasted lamb for the Passover meal that they're going to celebrate. As they sit down at this table, they've spent some time on the road. They've been walking many miles. And Jesus again takes the, the role of a servant, which was how Jesus lived his whole life. Um, instead of commanding them anything at this point, the first thing he does is he, he walks before them. He gets down on his knees with a basin of water, and he by hand washes 24 stinking, dirty feet. Um, and then he, he takes a towel that he had tied around his waist, and he, he dries their feet off. Jesus is with those that he calls closest. Um, they're celebrating a holiday, but the mood is not celebratory in this room. Um, it's, it's heavy and it's somber, and it, it is that way because Jesus just told them that there is a traitor in their midst. One of the 12, one of the closest followers, most trusted followers of Jesus, is about to betray Jesus. Um, so that's hanging over their heads as Jesus speaks these words. Starting in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he, he takes a, a freshly baked loaf of bread and he begins tearing it with his hands into chunks and he, he hands it out to his disciples. And they bite it and they, they eat it and they're probably wondering how this loaf is supposed to be his body. Then he, he takes a cup, um, probably of wine, maybe watered down a bit, and he passes it out and he says, drink of it, all of you, every one of you. And they do. They all raise their glasses and, and drink together. Um, and while they do, the disciples are probably wondering what Jesus meant by this is my blood of the covenant. They probably are also pondering that ominous statement of, I'm not going to drink it again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We don't know what Jesus' final thoughts were at this point, but we do know what happens next. Just a few hours after this meal, um, Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, and he was then handed by the Jewish religious leaders over to the Romans, who are the occupying military force and, and government. Um, the Romans tried him, they convicted him, they beat him, and then the next day they hung him on a cross, um, which is a way to execute common criminals. Jesus probably would have had this on his mind as they're sharing this, this last supper together. He knew that it was coming. So what did Jesus mean by the bread being his body and the juice or the wine being his blood? If you grew up um, as a Christian, you've probably gotten desensitized to this language. You've heard it a lot. Um, but it's, it's not a normal thing to say now, this is my body and this is my blood, eat it and drink it. And it wasn't normal in Jesus' time either. He's making a very unusual statement. And I, I bet the disciples were actually really confused by this. Um, so let's step back and examine what Jesus is saying and, and what's going on here. What Jesus is doing is he's giving them a tangible taste of a new covenant. But to understand a new covenant, the new covenant, uh, we, we got to know what the old covenant was. Um, that's, there are entire volumes that are written about the old covenant. I'm going to try to quickly summarize it. I know I can't do it justice in the time I have, but I'm going I'm to give it my best shot. The old covenant has its roots with the agreement that Abraham made with God. Remember, Abraham's the father of Israel. Um, God promised to bless Abraham and to make him a father of many nations. Um, many generations after Abraham, his, his descendants have prospered. They're very numerous. Um, but the people of Israel are not living as a mighty nation. Instead, they're living as slaves to a mighty nation. Um, as they're living in slavery under Pharaoh, God appoints a man, a prophet named Moses, who he sends to liberate his people from the hand of Pharaoh. When you read through Exodus, you get the story of all of the plagues that 
Moses called down on Egypt before Pharaoh finally relented. The, the final plague um, was the Passover event. Now, most of you have probably seen The Prince of Egypt. It's a great movie. Um, there's a really powerful scene that I, I think it captures this moment, though artistically it captures it well. Um, the Spirit of God comes down and goes throughout all of the land. Um, now, before that happened, God instructed the people through Moses that each family, each Hebrew family, was to take a lamb, and they're supposed to slaughter the lamb, they're to roast it, and then they were to eat it together as a family. Um, the other step that they were supposed to do was they were supposed to take blood from the lamb and then actually wipe it on the doorway uh, of the entry to their home. That night in Egypt, the Spirit of God did come down, and he came down with um, wrath, and he, he killed the firstborn of every family in Egypt, um, in every household that was not covered by that blood of the lamb. That Passover, when God passed over his people, that's what's being celebrated here when, when Jesus is with his disciples. Um, and that event also gives us a really good um, snapshot of what Jesus is about to do for his people. Once out of Egypt, the Israelites, um, you know, they make it across the Red Sea and they camp out uh, at the foot of um, Mount Sinai. <coughs> And it's there that God gives them, through Moses, a covenant, okay? Now, covenant is an interesting word. We don't use it a lot. Um, the only times I hear it outside of church, I think, are with marriage, the covenant of marriage. Um, a covenant is essentially a binding agreement with at least two willing parties that has specific terms. Um, agreement is not strong enough of a word for it, and, and contract isn't either. Um, covenant is kind of the strongest word we have. But um, the covenant that God gives to his people in Israel essentially boils down to this. The Israelites were to do whatever that God would tell them to do, and in exchange, they would be his people. God would make them the premier nation on earth. Let's look at Exodus 19.5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now God's terms um, included a lot. In his terms were the Ten Commandments and many, many other instructions. When the people heard all of the instructions from God, God saying, this is my part of the agreement, here is your part of the agreement, um, <clears throat> the Israelites agreed to them. Um, look at Exodus 24, verse 8. Then he, that's Moses, took the blood of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they, the Israelites, said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, the blood of animals, and he threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. 
I hope you can see now why I'm bringing up the Old Covenant. Um, and I hope you can see some of the parallels already between what Jesus has said uh, to his disciples and what was said to the Israelites so many years before. The blood of sacrificed animals was used to, um, to seal the agreement between God and his people. So now when you hear the words that Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, you can hear how loaded his statement is. When the Israelites agreed to the old covenant, it was ratified by blood. Here Jesus is saying, new covenant, it's going to be ratified by my blood. The old covenant was not a permanent solution to the condition of sin um, because the blood of animals never could take away sins of people. Um, the blood of animals is inadequate for this task. One thing that the old covenant did do well was it, it exposed the need that Israel had, that all humanity had, for a savior. It exposed the need for a perfect sacrifice that can be made, not once a week, not once a month, not once a year, but once and for all time. Back to that Lord's Supper, that last supper they're sharing together, Jesus is claiming to be that lamb. Jesus is claiming to be the savior who would take away the sins of the entire world. He knew that as blameless as he was, he was gonna have the guilt of all of our sins transferred upon him. He would become as sin itself, and he would sit in what should have been our seat, the seat of judgment, um, and he would incur the full wrath of God. By doing so, Jesus was not only clearing the record of debt that stood against us, which was tremendous, but he was also fulfilling our terms in the Old Covenant. The Israelites were not able to keep those terms, um, to follow God's commandments, to live blameless and upright, uh, and we can't either. And, and we know this to be true. Uh, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know this in our heart. We know that we are not perfect. Indeed, of the billions of people who have ever lived, only one person has ever lived perfectly in obedience to the Father, and that person was Jesus Christ. Jesus was this perfect man, and by living perfectly, he fulfilled the requirements of the law on our behalf, and he paid the price that was required for us to be adopted into his family. Um, let's look at Romans chapter 8. I don't have time to go through the whole chapter, which is truly incredible, but um, I do want to point out a couple truths here. So Romans 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to our spirit. So you can see in this, in verse four there, um, that Jesus 
didn't just satisfy his own requirements for righteousness, but by living righteously, he actually fulfilled our requirements. Go to verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Highlight that verse, uh, verse 17, or 16, and memorize it, because I promise you there will be times in your future when your own shame and doubt is going to creep in, and when Satan is going to scream in your ear that you are not good enough. Any child of God would not do what you just did. Um, It's at times like that you need to have scripture that you can fall back on, scripture that says things like, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Jesus claimed in his Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Included in that would have been the Old Covenant. He didn't come to abolish them, but he came to fulfill them. And this passage in Romans shows us that he did. He did fulfill the the covenant. He fulfilled the requirements of the law, and he paid the price that was necessary to adopt us into his family. This is why we can be called children of God. The price was his very life, and he willingly gave it up. Now, remember, a covenant has at least two parties. So I just walked you through what Jesus' part of the covenant was, to live perfectly, to receive our sins, and then be executed for it. So what is our end of the agreement in this new covenant? What must you do to be saved, to partake in this new agreement with God? It's fairly simple, actually. Um, Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So Jesus is telling us that all we must do to be saved is believe in him. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So the new covenant is this. Jesus was offered as a one-time willing sacrifice. He incurred our debt and the sin of believers was transferred upon him. He then died and was um, rose again that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and that anyone who wants to partake in this new covenant only believe in Jesus, and they will be saved. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Now, at that last supper, Jesus' last meal as a free man upon earth before his death, he left his disciples and those who had come after him with a very powerful reminder of what his death would mean and what that would mean for them. That last supper, he gave them um, 
the Lord's Supper was to be repeated, not just by the disciples, but by all believers. And that is what we do here at Pillar. Um, now I would like to tell you plainly uh, what we do and don't believe about the Lord's Supper. Um, this list isn't exhaustive, it's not all-inclusive, um, and it isn't arranged in any particular order, um, but they are truths that we believe. Firstly, we do believe that communion should be taken regularly. Um, Jesus said in, or Paul repeating Jesus in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, he said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So it was supposed to be a regular pattern, a rhythm, if you will, in his followers' lives, that they would do this and remember what Jesus had done. Um, many Christian churches don't do this every Sunday. Some of them do it monthly, some of them even quarterly um, or less. But we recognize how forgetful we are. We have very short memories at times. And we need regular reminders of who we are, of what Jesus has done for us. Um, so we believe that it's best done every week and that that is the most obedient response to Jesus' call. Um, second point is that all Christians should participate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, in verse 27, he said, drink of it, all of you. He didn't... He wasn't saying those words just to the disciples that were present either. He was saying that to the entire Christian church, those living and those to come, which includes us. Um, it's important to recognize when we, when we partake in the Lord's Supper that though we are from many, many different backgrounds, different tribes and nations, we're all coming together and eating of the same bread and then drinking of the same cup and we can have unity in that because we're all in Christ. Though he's made us so different, um, we all come to the same table. Third um, is that only Christians should participate in the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, 27, it says, Whoever, therefore, who eats or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So if the bread and juice are symbolic of his body and blood, blood, eating and drinking of them um, in an unworthy manner would invite the wrath of God. If you're participating in his death and you're not covered by his blood, um, you should not take of communion, okay? Only faith in Jesus can save you and drinking and eating um, it's not necessary for salvation, and it's not going to save you if you aren't already. Um, fourthly, <clears throat> we believe that the, the bread and the juice are symbolic. Um, now, Jesus used a lot of parables in his teaching, lots of symbolic language, um, and it's, it's pretty clear when he does use symbolic language. In John ten seven, he said, I am the door of the sheep. When he said that, um, nobody would have understood him as saying, I am a physical gate to a sheep pen. Um, it's easy to see he was making a parable with that. Likewise, he said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. It's pretty clear there. He's not claiming to be a plant. 
he is um, using that to describe his, his function and his role. Um, we believe it's the same thing here. We believe that uh, Jesus, when he takes the bread and the juice, he's saying they represent his body and his blood. Now, that's a, a really quick summary. Some of you are probably happy to move on, um, but I know some of you are probably dissatisfied with the level of detail I gave. Um, if that's you, if you would love to talk more, I also would love to talk more, um, and I would love to do it over a cup of delicious coffee. Um, I am a real snob when it comes to coffee, so if you're not, I encourage you to get it with Ron, because he said he likes Family Mart coffee even more. I'm not sure how we're still friends. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but seriously, that's an, that's an open invitation. Any of the elders here would love to meet with you guys at any time to go over this, to go over what salvation means, anything. Um, so please find us after the service if you want to make a coffee, coffee date with one of us. We eat breakfast too. <clears throat> okay, um, at the beginning of the sermon, I, uh, I asked you that question, you know, what would you tell your friends? What would I want to leave my kids with? Um, something I came up with is something I, I would like to share with you here. It's something that I do regularly with my kids. I have this, this short conversation. Um, so Elliot graciously came up uh, during the first service, service and, and Pippa is coming up um, for the second one. So Pippa, please come here. Um, so the words, the summary basically of this conversation will be up on the screen so you can see it in case you can't hear us. Um, but this is how this conversation goes. Pippa, first of all, thank you for coming up here. You're very brave. Pippa, who are you? I'm your daughter. And Pippa, what does that mean? That you love me. Why do I love you, Pippa? Because I'm your daughter. That's right. Now, Pippa, is there anything you could ever do that would make me love you anymore? No. Is there anything you could ever do that would make me love you any less? Why? Because I'm your daughter. That's right. Now, Pippa, if you're my daughter and I'm your father, who is God? My father. That's right. So what does that mean to you? That he loves me. Why does God love you? Because I'm his daughter. Pippa, if you were to do something terrible, something that would make me and your mom so mad, would that make God love you any less? No. What if you did something truly tremendous and you became a doctor and you did all this cool research and you got selected to be an astronaut and you landed on Mars? Would God love you any more for that? No. Why? Because I'm your daughter. That's right, and I love you. Now, I have this conversation with the kids pretty regularly. Um, there's a lot I do as a father that I'm not proud of. I lose my temper, and um, <clears throat> the kids need this reminder because they don't have a perfect father, and they don't have me as an early, earthly father who is always going to be there for them. Um, I want them to know deep down in their 
innermost being that they are loved and that they are accepted and that that is not contingent upon their performance as my children. I love them because they're my children. I am their dad. It's the same thing with God, only it's so much more true. Um, their adoption into his family was one he did on purpose. The debt was completely paid, and it's, it's an adoption that cannot be undone. Um, I will die, uh, but they will always have their father, and he will never, ever love them any less because of their performance. They will never be less a child of God when they mess up. Guys, going through this rehearsal of repeating who they are and why they are accepted and loved, this is what communion does. This is what Jesus does with us at the Lord's Supper. Jesus has given us a tangible reminder, words to be spoken out loud, physical steps to be taken. Taking communion does not save you, but it reminds us of the truth and it helps drive it down into our hearts. We do it regularly because we forget. When he tells you to come eat and drink, he's reminding us that we are deeply, deeply loved children of the Most High King. He's telling us that he has completely forgiven us of all of our sins. You know that thing that you've done that you're most ashamed of, your darkest secret? God has already seen that. He saw it before you did it, and he already forgave you of it. If you believe in Christ, you are fully forgiven. And when we eat and drink of the cup and the juice, we affirm this. We affirm that Christ did die for us and that his grace is sufficient even for somebody like me, even for somebody like you. When you take communion, it's just like that conversation that I had with Pippa. You are a son and daughter of the king and he's speaking over you that you are loved, forgiven, and kept. When we partake we have communion with God. And furthermore, we have communion with our, our brothers and sisters. Again, we're all coming before the same table and eating of the same bread and juice. We eat as the disciples ate, as our parents ate before us. We teach our kids to do this, and they, in turn, will hopefully teach their children and their grandchildren. And some beautiful evening, on that distant shore, we're all going to gather again for one big feast. It'll be like this as we're seated here, um, but so much better because then we're gonna sing for joy and never have tears to cry again. All the generations will be united together and then finally Jesus will keep his promise and he will drink again of the juice with us, his sons and his daughters. Here this morning, um, do not hide from your father. God is a God who is waiting for you with arms open wide. Um, I plead with you to run to him, to fall down on your knees before him, and to cry out, and allow him to speak over you that you are his beloved son and daughter, deeply loved. Let's pray.
Father, you are a good, good Father. Um, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his perfect life, for his death, and we thank you for this tangible reminder that you have given us um, one that affirms our identity in you, one that remembers the, the terrible sacrifice that Jesus made for our sake. Um, thank you for not leaving us as those who can't live up to the covenant, but Father, sending us one who would fulfill it for us. Uh, we praise you and worship you as our God and as our King. In Jesus' name, amen.